If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, our purpose statement um, for this church, it's a, a statement that's just trying to get at what it is that churches have been called to accomplish in their life together. And so our purpose statement just says, is just, um, is the following. It's following Jesus by loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. Due to COVID-19 and the restrictions connected to the virus, we've not been able to gather with one another um, the way we would like to. We, we're not able to gather freely or without uh, limitations. And so one of our goals um, as a church over the, the coming six months to a year is, is just to recognize our need to focus on that um, second and then the third part of the, that purpose statement, that is the loving one another. Okay? And that's where 2 Corinthians especially is focusing, is, is on what does, it, what does a, a vital, healthy community look like? To put it another way, we are really good at emphasizing our individual vertical relationship with the Lord. But over the the coming year, we want to focus on um, how that vertical relationship flows into our horizontal relationships uh, with one another. It's our desire to renew our love for one another um, and then allow that love from within us to, to flow into our, our neighborhoods and into our community. Where there's a crisis, there is also an opportunity. We know that there is a hunger for strong bonds, the desire to be part of a warm and vital community. And as a community, we are called to live differently, not just for our own advancement, but for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And so with that in mind, um, we need to cultivate that warm, vital fellowship as together we pursue the advancement of God's kingdom. And so before us in 2 Corinthians is this fascinating, it's a case study of, of Paul's relationship, his um, perseverance, his tenacity at cultivating a healthy, vital community in the presence of a lot of, of challenges, internal challenges um, that are particular to this church. In engaging with a very messy situation in Corinth, Paul, Paul models how we are to pursue that healthy, vital community. He shows us that it requires discipline and forgiveness and love, and it's worth it. Would you rise for the reading of God's, uh, God's word? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I I have pained? And I rose I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not for me, 
but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn uh, to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Savior, we come now asking that you would connect us to the vine of life, to your grace as your word is read and preached. And as we face the uncertainties of a changing world, grant to us now that sure foundation that belongs to those who hear and practice your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The context um, behind this section of Second Corinthians is that, again, Paul has um, he had scheduled a double visit, two visits uh, to the church at Corinth, one on his way into the north of Macedonia, and a second visit on his way back down. But in fact, um, Paul's travel plans changed. He changed his plans to visit them um, that second time. And this change of plans uh, was used by some in Corinth to attack Paul, to attack his character and to discredit his, um, his ministry. And in response, um, Paul's explained that his change in travel plans was not because of some defect or deceitfulness in his own character, Rather, it was because given the rebellious attitude and, and some of the, the sin that was present in the church at Corinth, uh, he hit the pause button to spare the Corinthians from a visit that would have just been characterized by, um, by uh, condemnation, by his apostolic um, authority bringing judgment upon the church and, and the lasting pain that that would have created. And so instead, uh, he writes a, a letter instead of making that second visit. But as we continue into chapter 2, Paul continues uh, by clarifying his decision-making, um, his decision-making process. So this is verses 1 through 4. Paul tells us right away in verse 1, for I made up my mind. Um, though it's not an emphasis here, it is just interesting. As he goes about making you know, these decisions, you know, uh, sometimes we can over-spiritualize when there's a tough decision to be made. And there are different paths we can take. And, and so we think, oh, you know, Lord, give me a sign. Um, in the Old Testament, it's called putting out the fleece, you know, like uh, the judge Gideon did. And, and, um, and if the Lord intervenes and acts according to the sign we've asked for, then that seems to be the green light or the, the indication of the direction we should go in. But that's not what Paul does here. He, he says, I, I made a decision. I, I, I just engaged my mind. And it's not unspiritual to say, you know, prayerfully speaking, 
I weighed the pros and cons. I, I, I sought the Spirit and, 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 and what the, the conviction of the Spirit was, but, but my mind was engaged in this, this decision-making process. And he goes on and he tells us, as he works through this, um, uh, that even though he came, uh, that his primary reason for not making the second visit was to spare the Corinthians, to spare them pain, he also acknowledges in verses 2 and 3, it was also, it, there was a part in him that also wanted to avoid the pain. It wasn't just about the Corinthians, but, but there was a part that Paul wanted to avoid this pain if possible. Verse 2, he says, I wrote as I did so that when I came, when I ultimately came the second time, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Paul's just freely acknowledging this wasn't the decisive thing, but, but he's also just saying, it, 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 yes, I want to spare you, and I want to spare myself as well. Verse 3, he says, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. And... Paul is also showing us that the process of discipline requires discretion. That there, He's making a judgment call here. Very often when we sense that there's a rupture in a relationship, our instinct is to go in person, to talk to that person, and to address the issue. And very often that's probably the, the, the right, the best course uh, to enter into because there you can get a sense of a person's heart but through the tone of their voice, and, and you can interact with the person's rationale for whatever the, the rupture was. So there's give and take in that process of going one-on-one to, uh, into a situation. But here the apostle shows us that sometimes that may not be the best way to handle you know, a rupture in a relationship. This is so fascinating Instead of going directly, he writes a letter. And in this case, so he's weighing the pros and cons, and and he comes to the decision that in this particular case, given the circumstances, that a letter uh, will be uh, the better course. And of course, this is just a judgment call on the uh, uh, in uh, by the apostle that he is making on how to address uh, the issue here. And so, uh, with these additional thoughts, he says in verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Later, in Second Corinthians, in chapter 7, Paul writes that he thinks this letter was, in fact, the right course, and that it had its proper effect. This is chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. The apostles um, pursuing correction within the church. And this pursuit of correction, this pursuit of what we, you might call it church discipline, 
it's not paint by numbers. It's not a formula. And, and very often we appeal to Matthew 18. I'll come back to that passage um, in terms of this kind of pattern of how to deal with conflict. But what Paul's showing us here is that there may be different ways of handling a rupture in a relationship or a situation that requires correction. And very often, and I've made use of this on several occasions myself, sending a letter, sending a note, you know, um, describing the situation. And, and sometimes um, what I've done is also attach just a biblical reference that addresses the issue at hand. Gives the person, first of all, a letter can give you the opportunity to really think through your thoughts and to be very clear in what you want to say. So that's the benefit of a letter. A letter also provides some space because very often when a person first receives that corrective uh, communication, their first response is (laughs) probably to be offended, right? Um, Their first response is to really be put off. But with time, they begin to think about it, and the Spirit works on them. And and very often what a letter can provide is some space for that person to really think through the issue, perhaps to think through the Scripture that would grant support to the issue and direction to it, and for a godly response. And that's exactly what the result is in the case of Paul's letter writing to the church at Corinth. But there's an underlying principle that also informs Paul's thinking in these verses. And it's this important principle that within the fellowship, that is, within the church community, the covenant community, we are connected. We're spiritually joined to one another. So that's kind of the underlying principle that's also guiding the apostles Paul and what he says here. In verse 2, Paul says that the happiness of the Corinthians will promote and bring him joy. And then in verse 3, he says the reverse, that his joy will promote joy with the Corinthians. Now, he can say this because as followers of Jesus, when we place our faith in Christ, we are united with Christ, who, you know, the, the New Testament uses this metaphor of a human body. And it says we're united in Christ, who's the head of the body. But all of us then are joined together when we place our faith in Jesus. We become the body of Christ. And so we're connected to one another as members of that covenant community. The other metaphor that the the Bible often uses is that of a family. Probably this is the, 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 the bigger metaphor because so often, whenever the Bible refers to us as brothers and sisters of one another, It's tapping into this idea or this metaphor that we are the family of God, that God now becomes our father. And as our father, we are sons and daughters, and together we are related in this kind of spiritual sibling relationship where we're connected to each other very closely so that now in our common language, we can refer to each other as brothers and sisters. We are joined with one another. And what this means is because we're, we're connected to each other, it means, well, hear what Paul says, but let me just step back. It means our, our actions, they don't just affect us. 
We would like to think that we're just like these individuals. We're doing our own thing. What I do should not affect you, whether for good or ill. But the Bible indicates that's just not so. Just like within a family. (laughs) You know, if a member of a family accomplishes something that's really honorable, they receive, you know, a great um, uh, commendation or honor, it reflects well on the whole family. And likewise, if a member of the family goes out and shoots up a restaurant, well, that also reflects on the entire family. And that's also true within the church family. And it's not to say that we're responsible. That would be taking this too far. We're not responsible for the actions of of others. But nevertheless, we are affected by the actions of one another. And the way in which Paul describes this is a little different than the way we often describe this unity, because he says, your joy, you know, so often we kind of have the idea in in, um, the, the kind of conventional wisdom is, I I need to sacrifice in order to make you happy. But in the process of making you happy, I may, in fact, lose my happiness. That's kind of a conventional way to think about relationships. But what Paul is saying is actually that's not the case at all. When I pursue your happiness, what I'm actually doing is pursuing my own happiness at the same time. This is why he can say, I... I recognize this unity, this connectionalism that we have toward one another, and that's why I didn't want to grieve you unnecessarily if I didn't have to with my, my visit. I, you are to be my joy, but that can't be true if you yourselves are in great pain and grief. And so he says, your joy means my joy. And the reverse and, uh, that he goes on to say is, and two, as I am growing in the Lord, as I experience spiritual victories, that will serve to encourage you. That will be your joy as well, because you see, we're all connected to one another. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> and you might think, oh, but I don't want to be connected. Well, you, you don't have a choice in the matter. It's just the way the Lord has made his, uh, his church, his body. And let me just say one additional thing. Not only are we connected with one another, but we need one another. Think of it this way. Think of a log that's set on fire. It's, let's say it's um, in the middle of your driveway. This log is burning brightly. But as long as that log remains isolated, as long as it's, it's the only log in the, in the driveway, you know that very shortly that flame, no matter how brightly it's burning, how bright the flame is, it is going to die. It's going to peter out. But what happens when you surround that log you know, with a pile of other logs that are also burning brightly. Well, what happens is is there's this kind of chain reaction involved that the one log uh, heats the other logs and vice versa so that there's this, this chain reaction, there's this combustion, so that together they burn brightly. And so it makes sense that we 
join. We need to be connected. We need to fan the flame within one another through our prayers, through our encouragement, sometimes by coming alongside and say, hey, brother, have you really thought through, did you hear what you just said? Are you paying attention to the course you're taking here? It doesn't seem to be consistent with um, the will of God for you. It's not good for, it doesn't bring glory to God, and it's not good for you. Sometimes that's what it means to fan that flame into fire is to, um, uh, to, to sometimes speak a word of correction to one another. Paul comes specifically uh, then to a disciplinary situation in verses 5 through 11. And here we see that both church discipline and forgiveness and then love are necessary. So there's a situation in the church uh, that Paul is speaking about, a particular individual that has come under church discipline. Apparently, this person has been excommunicated. That is, they they have been put out of the church. Their membership has been revoked. They are no longer welcome until there is some manner of uh, admission of guilt and repentance. Some understand this situation to be the same situation that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians, where there's an individual that Paul speaks of in in 1 Corinthians 5 that has an immoral relationship with his stepmother. Everybody knows about it, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul challenges the church to to effect church discipline by um, calling the man to repentance and, and falling short of that, to excommunicate this particular offender. The case here in 2 Corinthians does not appear to be that case in 1 Corinthians. By far, there are a few scholars that argue that it is, but by far the the greater majority of scholars, based on the language and the content that Paul is using in not just this passage, but in 2 Corinthians, that this is a different case. And in fact, looking at some of the content connected to this offender that is never named, he just remains anonymous, which is also an act of grace. But nevertheless, um, the the content indicates that this was likely, you know, you remember those traveling evangelists that, that created a faction within the church that was undermining the apostolic authority of Paul and attacking his character? Well, this individual, um, many scholars believe, was kind of the leader of this group. This was the lead person who was stirring up the um, criticism and the opposition to the Apostle Paul. And the the punishment um, that Paul speaks of in verse 6 is likely, again, the punishment of excommunication. The leader of this anti-Paul faction had likely done great damage. And so, as a result, he was put out of the church. Now, we we should pause and just talk a little about the need and importance of church discipline. On the one hand, if a church is going to remain faithful and strong, it needs to hold its members accountable to their calling to follow and submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In the history of churches within our tradition, that is the Presbyterian tradition, <clears throat> the practice of holding members accountable um, to following Christ, 
that practice of church discipline has been considered one of the marks of a genuine church of Christ. So that's how important this idea of maintaining um, healthy relationships and accountability has been within our church's tradition. There are two basic purposes for formal church discipline. The first um, purpose is to maintain order and accountability within the church. Okay? It's for the good of the church um, as a corporate body that the church um, uh, uh, practices church discipline. The second purpose, and, and, the, and it's interesting to me that the purpose that really the apostle emphasizes um, here uh, in this passage, the second purpose is for the spiritual good for the well-being and restoration of the person who comes under discipline. And so as a church enters into discipline, you know, you hope it's kind of like CPR training. It's important to be trained with, but you hope you never have to use it. <laughs> that, that's in some ways, this is what, you know, we're talking not just, you know, informally going to others and saying, hey, brother, have you thought about this? Um, uh, but when we're talking about formal church discipline that could lead to excommunication, this is not something that the church wishes to practice right, I mean, all the time. We hope that we don't need to do that as people are coming under the, the lordship of Christ, as we're working with good faith in our relationships uh, with one another. But nevertheless, um, there are occasions where it is necessary Jesus, and now I'm going to come back to Jesus, where he provides a basic pattern for how to deal with individuals who are in sin or in need of correction. In Matthew 18, he provides us the basic pattern. He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So step one, You see somebody who is in need of correction, or perhaps they've sinned. Maybe it's a sin against you. Your first course of action is not to go to somebody else and say, hey, can you believe what this person did? Your first course of action is to go directly to the individual um, who is at the center of of the issue, of the, the sin, and to speak directly to them. Now, is that easy? No, it is often not easy. Or am I qualified? Well, if you were the person who recognized the situation, then yes, you, you are usually qualified. Now, there are exceptions. You know, maybe if there's an age difference here or, or if the, the situation is such that this is not, uh, again, this is not paint by numbers. There are situations where it is wise to not go directly to the person. Um, and to bring someone else in, okay? But ordinarily, you know, if, if you see something going on, your first instinct, your first step um, should be to try to go to that person directly, one-on-one. Why? Because you want to protect. This is a way of demonstrating respect. This is a way of protecting a person's dignity. Um, nobody really wants to, to have their, their, um, the, the ugliness, you know, their, 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 their misdeeds uh, published uh, uh, broadly. 
And so we want to protect the individual where we can, though it may not always be uh, possible. And Jesus continues. He says, if the person listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The second step, even here, the second step is not immediately to go to the church authorities. The second step is to go to a trusted person or a wise person or two and then to bring them in on the situation, to seek their counsel. How, how, how do we go about um, addressing this issue? And then together um, uh, going to that person again, giving them a second opportunity. Um, and also they, they serve as witnesses if a formal uh, complaint then is lodged with the church authorities. And then Jesus says there's a third step. If that fails, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, at that point, they they fall under excommunication. They they would fall under some discipline. And there are levels of discipline. Excommunication is the last and the final step of church discipline. But other forms of discipline would include censure. Um, It could be public censure. It could be just barring a person for a a time from the Lord's Supper. Um, And then that final level of discipline uh, would be excommunication. One last thing. Uh, There are three basic categories of sins that can lead to church discipline. One is teaching what the church determines to be heresy. Another is immoral behavior A third category is contempt of the church's authority. But let me say this. Here's what's going to get a person in trouble at the end of the day. At the end of the day, what's going to get a person in trouble is a refusal to listen, (laughs) a refusal to repent. That's... that at the end of the, that's what's going to land you into discipline is a refusal to repent. Our goal is not to, you know, um, lord it over others as authorities. The goal is not to uh, uh, punish people. Um, The goal is to bring restoration to both the the church's community, but also for the individual involved. Now Paul turns from the good of the church to the good of the individual, The punishment apparently had served to bring the offender to repentance and godly sorrow. And now Paul is worried that the offender's sorrow will become excessive. Perhaps out of authority to Paul, or perhaps because their fellowship was really harmed by this man. Uh, The the, the Corinthians are slow to forgive, which in the context means they are slow to receive this individual back into the fellowship of the church. The apostle doesn't issue an edict here. So even as he pursues this, the apostle is not um, using his authority to tell the Corinthians what to do. In verse 9, he says, or verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. He's saying, look, if you decide as a church, I'm leaving it with you, but I want you to know if you do, in fact, receive this individual back into your fellowship and thereby 
um, forgive that, that person, I too will agree with your decision. I too will, in a sense, you know, this kind of technical sense, forgive this individual. But Paul goes on to say, in terms of the individual's own attacks on him, uh, verse 10, he's already forgiven the individual. So he says, uh, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been uh, for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, again, this is brilliant what Paul's doing. He's saying, I actually have forgiven the individual for the things he's done against me. And I've done it in the presence of Christ, not what's he doing here. He can't resist but to connect this to a theological um, uh, uh, principle, connecting it to a person, in this case, to Jesus, reminding that Jesus is also watching over how you, you deal with this situation. This is the one who has forgiven you, Corinthians, over and over and over again to the point of sacrificing his life on the cross. Here, Paul is rooting what he's saying in the gospel itself. And so he says, there is a point where the discipline comes to an end, where forgiveness, and not just to be received, but Paul challenges them to love uh, for him, going back to verse 8. So I beg you, to reaffirm your love for him. This isn't, this is, he's saying, I don't want you just to issue this kind of formal proclamation that the discipline has ended and this person's received back into your church. I want you to embrace this person. I want you to demonstrate um, a wholehearted love for this individual. And then the apostle concludes with a simple idea and a plea that we should be reminded of as well. We must keep the fellowship so as not to give Satan an opening. Paul says, I have forgiven, and so should you. Why? Verse 11, another reason, so that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is saying, don't be naive. As we, as a church, as a fellowship of Jesus, seek to fulfill our great calling in the world, we do have a great and powerful enemy who is seeking to stop and attack us at every step of the way. Satan would love this wound to the fellowship at Corinth to remain unhealed as long as possible. God desires us to be a unity of forgiven sinners, forgiving and loving one another where possible. Satan wants unforgiveness. He wants bitterness. He wants um, disunity because he knows if he can create disunity that our witness will be compromised, our ability to advance Christ's kingdom for the blessing and benefit of our neighbors, for our community will be hindered. As long as we're fighting um, with one another, we will be of little use to the master. Satan fears a disciplined and loving church. He fears a unified church. A unified church is a vital church, and a vital church will be successful in fulfilling their calling and advancing the kingdom. As we move forward, we are to pursue a healthy, vital community, 
characterized by discipline, forgiveness, and love. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your inspired, authoritative word. And it is our desire to submit ourselves with humility before your commands underneath your will. And we pray that it wouldn't just be a matter of submission, but it would be a matter of being conformed more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that our hearts, that our lives, that our fellowship would be would look more and more, uh, it would look more like Jesus himself. And so, Lord, we pray it, uh, that we would be faithful in every respect to our Savior and our Master, in whose name we pray, amen.